If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hey everyone, welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. I am Dr. Shiloh, and of course, I am here with my co-host, Dr. Scott. Hey, hey. everybody! Hi. Episode seventy-six. We are I, like on our road to a hundred. I can't believe it. It's so crazy. <laughs> it's, I mean, we say that every time, but like, I know. I guess we'll, sorry, folks, we just keep repeating ourselves. <laughs> so crazy. We have to do the vocal fry with it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, we are doing another listener question episode today because we've had a ton just sort of piling up. Um, Oh my gosh, they're so piled up. I'm so sorry. And good stuff. Some of these are just sort of emails that we turned into listener questions because they brought up really good points or we just kind of wanted to share it with folks. I think probably what we may have to do also, we we were just talking about this. We don't really want to divide this into two episodes. What we want to do is get this a solid episode and then maybe start every once in a while releasing just a couple of things that are like five or 10 minutes long that answers a question. That might be a nice little sort of amuse-bouche for our listeners. (laughs) I like that idea because we get some of these that we have to do a little bit of research or it covers a case or something. And that might be a fun little bonus. Yeah. Other than that, we have gone ahead and we put out the announcement that we are doing our Halloween Horror Nights meetup. It's going to be October 9th. Yes. It's a a, a September. It's a Saturday and Hollywood Paranormal, let me enunciate that, Hollywood Paranormal will be joining us and we're going to meet at Universal CityWalk hour or so before the actual event, before going into the park. So please come down and meet with us and feel free to come hang out at Universal Studios with us. Yes. And we need everyone to please entice Bryce to come into the park (laughs) with us. Let Bryce know that he has a safe space. We're going to protect him. It's not going to, we're not, he's not going to be traumatized. The more people, the more we can create a human shield around Bryce. <laughs> yeah. Like Bryce is a big buff dude. Like we need some people to yeah. just build that wall around him. <laughs> he's disarmingly large. Isn't like he? Like you just like you don't like he's he just don't realize like he's a big dude. He is a big ball of love. Yes. Love that guy. He's great. <laughs> All right. Any other announcements or do you want to jump into questions? I think that's it. Let's get going. Okay, so we have we said we wanted to ask each other kind of some fun questions. Yes. So we're going to start off with a couple of those. Then we'll get into 
the heady cerebral stuff that our listeners sent us and then maybe end with a couple more fun ones. Right. So I think it's funny you put this question when we were texting back and forth and I was like, what? But then I had a really good experience lately that I thought would share. And the question is, what is your favorite smell? Yeah. What is your favorite smell? Okay. So the story to go with this is that I recently discovered this amazing place in Echo Park. It is a coffee shop and a tattoo shop. Wow. It's called Super Sweet Tattoos and Coffee. And I went there one day for coffee because how could I not find it on Yelp and then explore it? And I realized when I walked in that the smell of coffee is one of my absolute favorite smells, but the sterile smell of a tattoo shop, like their cleaning products, is also another one of my favorite smells. And I remember thinking that if this also had a bookstore in it, my head might explode because those are like my three favorite smells. (laughs) But it's such a cute, adorable, very feminine place. And yeah, it had two of my favorite smells, tattoo shops and coffee shops. I love that. Yeah. What about you? Now you got me thinking. I mean, there's a couple of them. I will say this based on what you just said. One of my favorite smells is, and hear me out, is the smell of a clean apartment. And one of the things that, yeah, one of the things that I treat myself to, and I had to justify this to my mom years and years ago, because it was just sort of outside her realm of understanding that you would hire somebody to clean your house. And I was working at a talent agency like 14 hours a day. I was exhausted. And I could eke out just enough money to have somebody come in and clean. And I'm telling you, it was better than therapy. Just walking in at the end of the day into this completely spotless, dusted, waxed apartment with just a hint of cleaning products. Mm -hmm. And it was lovely. But as far as smells that transport me to another place, the smell of Idlewild, California really does it for me. And that is, it's high in the San Jacinto Mountains. So there's a combination of three smells that are amazing. Pine and manzanita trees. Mm -hmm. Manzanese trees have this really heavy rosin and the air up there is very dry. And it's just like, I don't, it just transports me. It's so relaxing. I go up there and you talk about coffee. So I grab a great cup of coffee at the Sunflower Bakery and sit out back underneath a huge live oak tree surrounded by pine trees and manzanita. I'm telling you, I feel like I'm getting a massage by the gods. It's incredible. I love it. Definitely painting. Well, in both of those, the the clean apartment and the idle wild little getaway, there's wellness wrapped up in both of those. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I love that. Good answer. Good answer. Okay. So what do you miss most about your job in law enforcement? I There's a lot of things I don't miss, but what I do miss is the camaraderie that comes with very unique situations and experiences. Yep. And I love that I still get a little bit of a taste of that at my current job when I work in the crisis negotiation capacity. So this might sound weird and you know it sucks at first when you get that call in the middle of the night, but there is nothing like standing in the middle of a street in the middle of the night 
debriefing a situation with some like-minded individuals where you just saw the craziest shit go down, yet, you know, you all did your job, you were all professionals, and you're just downloading it together. Yeah. I love that. That makes me feel still a little bit connected to what I used to do, but obviously it was in a different capacity. But I really, I really miss that night after night. Now it's a few times a year, but yeah, I think that's what I, I miss the most. What do you miss about your job in entertainment? I love this question. And I think it was, I think it was Rebecca, Sebastian, or maybe Jason that suggested it. So I love this question. I'll tell you what I miss most about working in entertainment was 90% of the time you're working with whip smart people, like the most brilliantly quick, witty, and hilarious people that you could ever imagine. When I worked in casting, particularly with Allison Jones, there were days that we would laugh so hard we would we would be on the floor. I and I'm not exaggerating at all. <laughs> I mean, we would be clutching our stomachs, laughing so hard, going, what is wrong with us? We've got to get this to get our shit together. <laughs> right. but it was we also, gotta do some work. <laughs> yeah, it was also bizarre events like where uh-huh. we would deal with an, an actor that came in that was just like absolutely from another planet or a producer that would say like literally the stupidest thing you could possibly imagine. And it would just, Allison also is just a wickedly, wickedly funny individual. Oh, I bet. But I I remember three or four times where we were laying on shag carpet in that office in North Hollywood laughing so hard. I thought I didn't think we were going to recover. <laughs> just on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, you know, and I work with some really great people now, but it's a very different environment. And sure. with those sort of like constant what the fuck moments that you're talking about, you know, yeah. with law enforcement and in community mental health um, and forensics, we definitely get those. But I will say, but, you know, I still get that laughter. I love the understanding that we have and sort of the the commonality of language. But when you laugh really, really hard, you're basically dumping dopamine and serotonin into your system. Totally. So, yeah. Yeah. That's it was fun. like, yeah, it was my laughter Lexapro at the time, which I don't really <laughs> have much of anymore. All right. So this next question, it comes from our friend, Michelle Kay. And she said, what's the most important life lesson you learned from your parents? Or she said like a parental figure, someone important in your life. I don't know if like, when I first picture this in my head, I'm like, I don't know. Like, I can't see this one like thing that my parents would say to me. But I, I think that's just it. I don't think it was in words necessarily. I think it was in in modeling and in action. And I would have to say for both of my parents in their own way, it was the way in which they supported me when I really needed them to. And I'm not a person that likes to ask for help or support. Right. So when I did... All right, I used to not be that person. So when I did, I'm sure both of them knew, okay, this is serious, <laughs> first of all. But my dad is just such a wonderful, emotionally intelligent man that could just let me sort of sit in it, whatever it was, and then knew the right time to offer some advice or ask if he could offer advice, which was great. And then my mom was the one when I really like once a year would have my sort of breaking point that I would call. And same thing, like she just knew how to sit there 
with me. And, you know, usually it was on the phone. But I think that's been a lesson for me to pass on to friends and family myself without trying to fix their problem, but just be there for them as well as, you know, obviously it's a therapeutic skill as well. But that's, I I think that those are the lessons. Yeah. What about you? My really, I think that immediately I think about my mom and my mom was a child of the depression and as was my dad and growing up in that time during severe nationwide economic distress really has it's a mixed bag of what you walk away with but what i got from my mom was that you'll always survive mm. you know you always figure a way out and i didn't even know it until i got out of college and i was living in chicago or living in la and i'd be around people that had my same education level and came from great families but didn't know how to figure things out sometimes. Like just didn't know how to go, okay, you've only got $5 to get you through the next three days. What yeah. do you do? How do you, and I'm talking like 30 years ago, what sure. would you, which would be probably $15, but how do you get through $15 for a couple of days and eat three meals a day and make sure that you're getting your shit done. Yeah. And mom just always had this unbelievable practicality that I think all of us in my family inherited from her. There's also like a negative aspect to it. If you want to go, like I spent a lot of time in therapy talking about this, but <laughs> you, know, you have to teach your kids to thrive as well mm-hmm. as survive. And that was something that during the hard economic times, we didn't concentrate a lot on, you know, cause you weren't thinking about thriving during that time, but man, yeah, I can survive. I, I have great survival skills. It's not exactly it. You know, it's sort of resilience, but it's like grit. You know what I think of like that. Yeah. You are going to persevere. This is going to be really hard, but there is a way out, but the only way out is through it. <laughs> so, you know, I love that saying, the only way out is through and that you'll persevere, but you got to figure it out. You can't just freeze up and think that someone's going to pluck you out of it and rescue you from it. That's great. All right. So what was your last meal? The last real meal? I mean, like this morning, <laughs> I had a great protein shake after the gym. But last night, Friday night is usually our takeout night because we uh-huh. both have long weeks. And last night, we realized we had not had Thai food in a long time. Yum. So we had this phenomenal Thai takeout. And I had Pad Thai, Mikrob, Panang Curry, and a couple of other things that was just like, oh my God, these flavors are so good. I mean, my Dan is a fantastic cook. Yeah. And but man, this was really good. Mm. So my last meal was while my daughter was in art class this late morning. So this is pretty, pretty about as California of a meal as you can get. I had an oat milk latte. I had avocado toast, which was, it was like an avocado puree more than just straight up avocado with green sliced green tomatoes on top, some arugula and some red cabbage with a little bit of like celery salt on top. And was it on seven grain sprouted bread? Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. 
And I had to take the 405 to the... <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. I didn't. It's so delicious, though. It's really it's good. It's so delicious. And if especially you wanna... with like a sprinkling of really crunchy sea salt on top. Yes. Oh, so yes. good. So good. If you guys want to know where to get the best avocado toast or breakfast burritos in Los Angeles, hit me up. I will give you a full spreadsheet. <laughs> this was closer to my home, but... Right. All right. So those let's let's move on to some questions from some listeners. We're going to jump right in on a very current event and a very bizarre case. So Danielle from Instagram says she wants to know our thoughts on the Robert Durst trial and the fact that we just found out that he's going to testify. So let me just do a little recap of Robert Durst trial. This I love this question because it brings up a couple of other issues that are very psych relevant. So Robert Durst, whose trial has been dragging out for a number of reasons, his health, COVID, some extradition stuff at the beginning, but he's the multimillionaire real estate heir who was the subject of the HBO crime documentary, The Jinx, which is incredible. It's a probably one of the best ones. He's accused of killing his close friend, Susan Berman, in 2000 here in Los Angeles. So Berman was murdered in her Beverly Hills home hours before she was supposed to talk to investigators about the disappearance of Durst's first wife, Kathleen McCormick, which her disappearance happened in 1982. And Durst was a suspect in that investigation. And then the prosecutors allege that he had confided in Berman that he had killed Kathleen and she had helped cover it up a bit. So this trial that's happening now marks the second time that Durst has stood trial for murder, right. not for his first wife, but he was acquitted in 2003 of the murder and dismemberment of his neighbor, Morris Blake, in Galveston, Jeez. Texas. So he admitted to dismembering him, but said that the death was in self-defense. It was like a struggle over a firearm. And he was acquitted. He was had to be extradited to Los Angeles at the start of all of this from New Orleans. And then his health, he had undergone some surgery. He is 78 years old now, and he is set to take the stand in his own defense on Monday, which is a couple of days before this episode comes out, so we'll know more. What are your general thoughts about him or the case, Scott? I am going to be interested in seeing what happens as far as how they approach his defense. I can't think, but there's so much narcissism going in him. It's hard to believe that he's not guilty, especially after watching the jinx. It feels like the Bill Hader documentary now take off on thin blue line where basically it's like, he's basically just sitting there saying, yeah, I did it. I did it. No one's paying attention to him (laughs) because they're all directed someplace else. And I just, I, I have a lot of feelings. One of the main ones is like, it's just frustrating that it keeps going on and that why is it keep getting extended out this way? Is it because he has enough money to keep it going in yeah. the system? He's, he's such clearly, a bizarre man. Yeah. He's that would be the best way to put it. He's truly a bizarre guy. Well, and so is that enough to convict him? I, I mean, I know I mean, right. he should be convicted on being bizarre, but well, it's all these evidence and he seems to confess in the jinx, right? Right. I, I still think it's incredibly circumstantial. Like there's no oh. really, really hard evidence linking him to Susan's 
death. I mean, there's some pretty incredible circumstantial evidence. You know, it's just such an interesting case because he is so bizarre. He is this incredibly privileged, wealthy man who has probably gotten away with murder twice. I mean, at least once that we know of when he got acquitted. And in 2003, he did end up getting evaluated by a psychiatrist who had spent several days with him, like over 70 hours when he was on trial in Texas and ended up diagnosing him with Asperger's. And the the psychiatrist in that case said, quote, emotion is very difficult to him. He doesn't know what happy is. He can feel it, but almost as if he were feeling as we would feel fingers through a glove. It's very dulled at best. To him, his whole life's history is so compatible with a diagnosis of Asperger's disorder. So, well, which, so he was saying this in terms of to him, just chopping up a body that you accidentally killed would kind of have no emotion going with it. That's the part that this psychiatrist came in on. But I think we have to acknowledge, okay, if he was diagnosed with this and he has this disorder, then that might be what sort of presents as bizarre to us. I'm not saying that that by any means (laughs) exonerates him from any of this wrongdoing. I just think it's an interesting piece to talk about. It is. And then you you had mentioned also that the defense had been Dr. Loftus, right? Yeah. So she, I think she's going to continue her testimony on Monday morning. She's been on the stand for a few days. And if, if you know forensic psychology, Elizabeth Loftus is definitely who you think of as the expert when you think of eyewitness testimony and the human memory and false memories. She is the expert. And I got to tell you, and I've talked about on the, on our show in previous episodes about how much admiration I have for her. I think that she has really uncovered a very, very important aspect of human behavior, human cognitive functioning that is absolutely integral to the process of criminal proceedings. I mean, I really, really do without a doubt. That being said, I did send you an article Gosh, when was that? Like it was months ago. And it was about, it was the New Yorker article about her testifying in the defense of Harvey Weinstein. Right. And, you know, she talks about the plasticity of memory and how, and she gives great examples and and breaks it down and gives really a bullet point understanding of how easy it is to manipulate memory and also how memory can degrade and be influenced by other interpersonal experiences over time. Mm -hmm. So I I have nothing but admiration for that. However, in the big picture of human behavior and social contract and understanding our role and where we are, I I just really can't wrap my mind around why she would agree. The New Yorker article talks about her sort of being worn down by the defense team to go and testify in Weinstein's defense. It's like, why would you do that? I mean, the idea is just preposterous. Yeah, I, I gosh, I'm on the fence about this because if if you're an expert and you are purely just asked to talk about the science and the data and your work, regardless of what side it's supporting, 
I feel like it should be entered into the forensic realm or the criminal justice realm. Hmm. It's not her fault that her research may support this piece of shit. I mean, she can choose what cases she takes, of course, but... I think that's where my... I completely see where you're coming from. You have an absolutely valid point. I just... I I couldn't do that. Yeah, I couldn't do that. Right, right. And I think you just have to... If she can compartmentalize it and say, look, this is what my research shows and it's going to be helpful to somebody who deserves a defense, then she might be a bigger person than I. You know, I, I find it very similar to like when people would ask us, oh my God, how could you do therapy with sex offenders? That's true. You know, it's like, well, (laughs) I I mean, that's also one of the, I mean, that's also why I could never be an attorney and why, you know, I admire that there are people who can be attorneys because I've been involved in cases that have been so horrifically wrongly done where justice, Mm -hmm. maybe the right verdict, maybe the right verdict was given, but the way they got there was completely immoral and unethical. And I, that's a problem that I have. Yeah. And also, like, so anyway, I I, I see where you're coming from. It's, I think it's really harder for me probably to divest myself of the emotional process. So I'll own that, you know, but I think you Mm -hmm. do have a good point that, like, the data is the data, right? Yeah, it is. And you just, I think when you're an expert in that position, you just hope that your words don't get twisted or that questions are asked appropriately as to not taint the science that you're trying to just put out on the table. Yes. And I think for me also is that if I was in that position and believe me, I'm nowhere near Dr. Loftus's level of accomplishment. I think I really do think she's amazing, but if I I would have a problem with, if I had to give testimony with this data and then the people who hired me to be that expert then turned and tried to vilify the alleged victims, that would be a problem for me. Got it. Yes. I think that's where, that's the process I go through. Sure. Yeah. Because regardless, you're going to be aligned with that, whether that's appropriate or not. Right. This side that the defense puts on, you're always going to historically be associated with that. So it's, it's something expert witnesses have to way. And, you know, as we have both talked about before, especially when you've talked about rendering your opinions and things like that on the stand that, you know, you are being compensated just for that. It's for your time and your expertise. It's not buying somebody's opinion to back up the defense or the prosecution. It just should be, it is what it is. Just as if they were to get a piece of paper that said, okay, here's the science, but they have to have a person stand up there and talk about it. So next question. So this is from Janet Varney. She is one of our patrons. Thank you, Janet, for supporting us and also the host of the JV Club podcast. She asks, and I'll tell you where this is coming from because she and I have been in contact about this, but her question is, What is it about our culture that we attribute maturity and guile to the very young, whether they be victims or perpetrators? Great question. Janet and I are both trying to read through right now the series of books by Steve Hodel on the Black Dahlia. And so we have been discussing offline very young victims of sexual abuse and how they are 
portrayed when they are part of the criminal justice system and people are trying to say that they are promiscuous or liars. And instead of saying, no, this is a 14-year-old child who was a victim, as well as the tendency, especially in more modern times, to then with perpetrators who are young and commit very serious, sometimes heinous crimes to then treat them the same as adults. And I think that's been a question I know. I I did not work in juvenile sex offender treatment, but every time I took a a training or cross paths with experts in that field, the mantra around it was this quote of kids are not short adults. We cannot just treat them the same and they just physically look different because they're not grown yet. And that's why we have an entire juvenile criminal justice system that is supposed to work differently. It's supposed to ensure rehabilitation instead of just punishment and be suited for giving these individuals a second chance. But we know, especially in this country, a lot of the laws and a lot of the punishments have swung to the complete opposite side of of the pendulum spectrum there. And I mean, we have what is it, Pennsylvania, you can still put a child away for life based on a crime that they committed when they're a juvenile, which is insane. Nowhere else in the world does that. Right. And so I think that, you know, when it comes to perpetrators, again, the more heinous the crime, the more uncomfortable we are with it. And it's always a comparison to us. And we always want to back away from that and put a buffer in between we're not like that person. How could they do this? This is so horrific. And the more we can isolate and label that individual instead of try to understand them and just, it feels more comfortable, unfortunately, to a lot of folks to just lock them up and forget about it and pretend like it doesn't exist or that it's not a problem for you. If you're a person of privilege, especially if you're not seeing it over and over again, you're just hearing about it on the news happening somewhere else. That's what we tend to do. Yeah, I would add to that that it's only been a relatively short time in modern history where we're only getting away from absolutely seeing children as capable of seduction and guile and adult levels of manipulation. I mean, any parent of a toddler will tell you that a a kid can lie and they can be tried. They can try to be skeevy about getting their needs met clearly. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it was horrific all the way past Victorian times when, you know, children would get raped and then it would go to court and the guy would throw up his hands and say, she was flirting with me. She was throwing herself at me. So really it comes back to the intense influence of patriarchy throughout Western culture. I mean, it's just, it's always sort of this seeing anything other outside sort of white male heteronormity as being other and then less than and the exterior influence on in. And, you know, we just have to get away from that. I mean, it's still, we have the remnants of it now. And certainly the laws are better. It's been just a relatively short time since we used to blame kids for that. In fact, there's a really great book called The Culture of Fear that you can get from your local library. It's been in print for probably you know, close to 20 years. But this journalist writes about 
how we have done this throughout history is either we're blaming the immigrants or we're blaming a subculture or an aspect of culture within the U.S. And many times we have blamed teenagers and children, mm-hmm. especially when the economy gets bad. We start blaming children for things and teenagers. These, he talks about, I mean, he shows newspaper clippings of like how it's been just cycles every few decades or so. It's like this, the emphasis goes back on to how bad kids are. Lovely. Yeah. Well, and I, when it comes to victims, I think we, in the same vein, we're so self-centered that we tend to constantly just compare other people's experiences with ours. Right. So you're going, oh, okay, let me put try to put myself in the shoes of that victim. Oh, I would never be there or I would never hang out with those people. And that's why they got themselves into trouble. You know, it's just so hard to wrap your mind around that somebody has this completely different experience that again, we're doing it again. We're just making people who either do bad things or bad things happen to them, trying to distance ourselves from them Absolutely. as much as possible. And we do it to minors who are trafficked. We do it mm-hmm. to minors, especially sex trafficked, is that there are so many sort of self-righteous adults that go, wait, you were trafficked when you were 17? Come on. You mean a 17-year-old didn't know better, didn't know what was happening? By this time, you're into it. It's like, no, 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 honey. That's not the way it works. Is this person has been trafficked. They've been brainwashed. They have been... Victimized. ...culturated and victimized and institutionalized into that toxic and illegal lifestyle. You can't look at it cleanly. And it's the same thing. I mean, you can, as, as an extension, you can, we can ask, like, why do people stay in violent relationships? It's not that simple. It's never that simple. You know, and that's why Lenore Walker's cycle of violence and the research on intimate partner violence is so important for people to understand that it's not just a black and white easy decision of like, oh, I've gotten beaten a few times, I'm out of here. It's never like that. It's never that easy. Right. And that and that's a unfortunately just in our human nature to look at someone else's situation and blame them when bad things happen to them. But yep. then when it happens to us, we tend to blame external factors. So I I acknowledge that that is internal within us, but we need to rise above that. Right. Critically think a little bit more with right. our evolved brains. <laughs> so we got another one from River. This was a professional question. It was, my eventual goal is to become a correctional psychologist. I was wondering whether either of you might be able to give me guidance on, firstly, whether there are ways to craft my master's thesis so it could eventually evolve into a doctoral dissertation, and secondly, ways to use my time as a master's student to get experience with corrections and make myself the best possible eventual doctorate-level clinician I can. Okay, that's a lot, River. This but is all a, you, but it's a great psychologist. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to hit on a couple of things. So regarding training, it really all depends on what state you're in. So in California and New York State, as well as a few others that have higher population and more dense populations, you can definitely work within corrections as a master's level clinician uh, in clinical psychology or social work, either as a paid employee or a trainee in California. You can definitely work as an unlicensed intern in all mental health disciplines and get paid by the state or each individual county and possibly even cities. 
Now, depending on where you live, I would suggest that you go through the state employment listings, the county employment listings, and the city employment listings, because many government agencies are using aggregate employment databases such as Brass Ring to sort of be the aggregator collector of the information, and it'll redirect you to a county website. So, I mean, LA County is huge, and it has its own websites, but like smaller principalities and counties might not have a fully functioning online portal for hiring their employees. So you might not get the most comprehensive listings or the information may not be as organized as well as it is on the coasts. Use search terms like clinician, mental health, or behavioral health to see what comes up. One thing that Facebook has done, which has been really amazing and has made networking a lot easier than in the past for dissemination of important information, is that you go on Facebook, you look for, like, say you live in Poughkeepsie, you go to Facebook and you search for Poughkeepsie mental health clinicians, or you got to be creative in the way you use the, the search terms and then join those groups and ask people post and say, hey, I'm a master's level clinician. I'm looking forensics types work. Is anybody here doing this? Or do you know anybody that's doing it? And can you hook me up? And I'm telling you, like, you'll be amazed at the kind of referrals and support that you can get by asking a question like that. Yeah, those groups Um, are great. I I wish I had that as a student. I didn't even, I don't even know if it existed, but... I didn't yeah, I mean, better. Facebook was just getting started about the time that we really, yeah. you know, I mean, we already had our paths kind of laid out, but for other people, I think it would really help a lot. You know, you can also do things like call your local jail, the county or state prisons, and just say, hey, can I be connected to the mental health department or your mental health services? Mm-hmm. And just take a chance and say, hey, I'm trying to talk to somebody. Is there a clinician there that could give me a couple of minutes on how I find my way through this? Yeah. So that's a way to do it. Most of the time, I mean, whenever I was in that position, I would sit down and talk to people for a long time and give them information. So I think that'd be a great place to start. I would even say if, I mean, that's a lot and I think something will pan out from that, but even looking at probation and parole, because they are going to have services for previously incarcerated people. So it's still experience. So if you can do the same thing, but looking at probation or parole departments in your county or state, if you get experience there, then when you eventually are going into a doctoral program or looking for jobs and corrections, you can say, I worked with individuals who were coming out of prison back into the community. So you, you're you used to working with the population with those unique therapeutic issues. Which is just, I mean, you'll get a job. You'll be, oh, yeah. be I have to tell you that, I mean, I have a, a good bit of experience under my belt now. It's funny because I, when I'm talking to you, you know, you and I met at such critical junctures in this new career that we took on that I kind of time travel backwards. And I keep thinking, oh, we're still interns. I'm like, no, we're not. We've, we've, done, we've both <laughs> right. done kind of amazing things since we've gotten out. I mean, we've both really wrung every bit that you can out of this career, which is great. But one of the things that 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 is really cool about this is that most of the time people are really supportive and able to answer questions. But beyond that, anytime you come in with with experience working with a difficult population immediately catches people's eyes. Yep. Like they'll look and go, oh, wait, this person worked with probation. 
okay, literally they can take anything. If they survive two years working with probation, we're going to put them at the top of our list. I I really feel strongly about that. So I wanted to go back and answer the other part of the question, which is about your thesis. I would suggest that for a master's thesis, you either focus on an overarching concept or one small part of an area that you're interested in. So then for doctoral work, you'd be able to expand and build on that particular idea. So most importantly, and I know a lot of people out there are really going to disagree with me, do not pick something that is boring, that's supposedly like a quick or relatively easy topic to do. Like you go and you get a standard data set from any of the data sets that are out there that you can pull from that's on people with Asperger's, eating habits, living in board and cares. It's like, oh, great. There's a whole data set of that I'm going to like, <laughs> I'm going to dive down in that and I'm going to put it into the stats computing machine and pull out one particular thing and write on it. I mean, you can do that. You'll be bored off your ass. That's what and... I did. And it was hella boring. <laughs> really? <laughs> I Well, yeah, it was a database that already existed, but it had not had any research done on it before. Okay. So four of us were the first ones to do it, but it just needed to be done. And I needed so you to be did. done. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, everybody has a different path. I'll tell you, I mean, let me say a little bit more and I'll tell you why about I said this is that, look, nothing that you do in the doctoral process of producing your dissertation is going to be easy. It really isn't. And even the things that are easy, like, oh, I found another article. Oh, I found another article. Yeah. Well, now you've got 50 articles that you've got to rate in levels of importance, and you've got to parse them out, and you've got to read each one, and you've got to pull and compare. The, even the things that you love are going to be difficult in some way. So it's going to be frustrating because it's supposed to be frustrating. It's supposed to be frustrating and challenging because that's what getting a doctorate is about is showing that you can follow through with this. You know, your passion for the subject matter will pull or push you through the process when you don't think you've got anything left to give, I can promise you. So if you pick something boring, you're going to be bored before you're even a third of the way into the process. And the pursuit of a doctoral degree is to go way beyond mastery of a subject into a state where you are open to constantly learning, challenging yourself, challenging the field and have the capability of passing on your knowledge. I mean, that's really what it's all supposed to be. I was the student reviewer of two dissertations and both of them worked from standard data sets. Both of them picked something they had no interest in and they were miserable by the end of it. They could not even, I mean, I had a passion for my subject matter because my subject was on men during the then, you know, HIV was still a really big deal because the new Mm -hmm. meds had only had come in. But there was a phenomenon that had been going on since the beginning of HIV that men were barebacking or not engaging in protected sex. And I was like, how are guys not doing this? Like we've had this for 20 plus years what is going on? I want to understand the dynamics. I I wanted to really go into like, what is it about that particular characterological makeup that presents with somebody that makes this choice of like, I'm just not going to do that no matter what, not going to wear condoms. And I mean, I was passionate about it because it affected my life. I mean, I lost a lot of friends, which leads to another question that we'll answer at the end. But one thing about that I got from my chair 
of my program. And we had a, we had a, a tough relationship there at the end. I have great admiration for her, but she was really right about one thing. I overdid it. So I'm asking you guys to find something you're passionate about, but make it doable. Right. I did four times as much work as I needed to do. I could have done one test battery. And what I did was I did four test batteries on 157 people and it nearly killed me. I mean, it oh was my a God. lot of data. It was a lot of work. She was absolutely right about, yeah. about that. So there were a lot of other things I did not agree with her about, but that was one thing that looking back, she was, she was really right about that. And if you're out there, Dr. H listening, you were right. I was wrong. I <laughs> offer you my professional apology. I think that's great advice. Stay focused, but do it on something that's going to maintain your interest. And, and do a bite. You don't have to eat an entire elephant. You can do. Right. You can eat a nice little ribeye steak. Well, and that that goes back to what this person is asking because then when you go to do your dissertation, you can choose another bite. And just you already have the background done. Yeah, and you know, pick another I'll, aspect. I'll tell you, out here, I don't know what's happening on the East Coast, but I'll tell you, I'm seeing more and more master's theses that are like hella complicated. Really, and I'm I'm like I think it's a bit much. I don't. I mean, I think it's for a master's. I don't think that some people have to do quite that much work. But mm. that's just my opinion. Yeah, it's. I said it's good because I think it. <laughs> there are some doctoral programs where you can basically do a pamphlet or a lit review oh, a for your report. dissertation yeah. and get your doctorate. <laughs> no, that pisses me off. <laughs> and that's too. not that's okay. The other side of it. That's the other side of it. I don't. I don't agree with that either. Yeah. 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 Well, my I. I mine was not terribly interesting because it was so stats heavy, but I definitely had a carrot being dangled in front of me as far as getting it done quickly because we were going to present it at an international conference a couple years before graduation. So I got it done quick and had this wonderful experience of being able to present. Oh, that's great. So I, I was very motivated to get it done. All right. So we have another email and this is from Kelly in Minneapolis. Hi, Kelly. And she says, I work with people experiencing long-term homelessness, severe mental illness, often compounded by substance use disorder, mm. trauma, and a tough criminal background is all too common. Lately, I've been feeling seriously burnt out between the daily grind and my own mental goings-ons. So this wasn't really a question, but I pulled it because one Callie, thank you for what you do. I yeah. wish we could address this in an episode as far as long-term homelessness. Scott and I see the worst of it on a daily basis yeah. in the area in which we work in Los Angeles and the the way in which it's been a decades-long problem in Los Angeles. And I think it, it's the one area in which I feel so helpless and uneducated in and being married to someone who works in law enforcement who has been trying to help with this problem of homelessness from a law enforcement standpoint and a quality of life community standpoint it's just a very very hard situation and i i, I feel like everyone says i don't know what the answer is and i truly don't know what the answer is but kelly whatever well, you're complex. doing to help them it's wonderful. But the piece that stood out to me for this is burnout. And yeah. I thought it was just worth talking real quick about what burnout is and ways to combat that. 
And I do a good deal of talking about this with clients, but burnout is really... It refers specifically to the phenomenon in the occupational context. So it's your reduced professional efficacy, and it can be through feelings of your energy being depleted or exhaustion, but also increased mental distance from your job or feelings of negativism or cynicism related to your job. And not in like a healthy way, because we can deal with it with a little bit of cynicism, but in a really unhealthy way where it's making you feel all of those things. But there's a ton of ways to combat that. I think if you really feel like you're in that, it can be psychologically and physically unhealthy for you. I would suggest talking to a mental health professional and just strategizing a little bit about how to pull yourself out of it, especially if you're considering making drastic decisions like leaving your job or if you feel like it's impacting your behavior at work. But I would say a couple of things. Assess what you can do as far as healthier workplace habits. That might be resetting some boundaries as far as your work-life blend. And are you taking stuff home? Are you saying yes to too much? All of that and kind of like basic organizational stuff, time management, and then also really focusing on your coping and your self-care. But what I find the most maybe not so intuitive for folks is sometimes we just have to shift our perspective, which we is really hard to do because you feel like, I'm not wrong. This is the person that's acting inappropriately or unfairly or making this workplace miserable for me. And... Sometimes you have to shift the way you look at that and just take responsibility for yourself. And that can be hard to do because when things don't feel fair, we think, why should we have to be the one to do the work? And life isn't fair and work isn't fair sometimes. It is not. And I think you're talking about something that's really super integral and important for us as we step into maturity and adulthood. And this can look different for everybody, and it's very insidious and sneaky. Is don't take things personally. Mm, yeah, there yeah. literally is nothing personal. I know that. I mean, even if someone gets in your face and starts calling you every name in the book, it is not personal. It's about them. Yep. You know, take ownership for what you might need to hold and adjust, and then separate yourself from that. is is certainly really great in just sort of basic day-to-day interpersonal reactions. But when it comes to burnout, especially in with the level of work that you have on your shoulders, I think that you have to take a break before you can start putting those tools into use. And I am the world's worst at using my vacation. <laughs> I mean, I, I talked about it a little bit on Get Vocal last week. Yeah. And I finally, it's been a rough year. And sometimes it's like vacations wear you out longer, more worse than anything else. And I did a staycation of a week at home, just hanging out and kind of doing some stuff, except that I intentionally was like, not only am I going to make sure I'm at the gym every day, I'm going to make an effort to try and maybe eat a little bit better. But what I am going to do is I'm going to do all those things that make me feel better. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to stretch. I'm going to journal. I'm going to stretch some more. I'm going to walk. I'm going to hike. I'm going to stretch some more, journal some more, meditate, chant, whatever you do. Yep. Those are the things that you do to clear the surfaces 
So you've got a desk and a, a virtual mental, emotional desk in front of you that now you can start rearranging yes. your perspective on what it looks like. Because I, I was snapping at people at work. I was frustrated. I was tearful, you know, because we deal with some heavy shit mm-hmm. on a daily basis. So mm-hmm. it's my responsibility to take care of myself because I can't expect mama or daddy corporation to take care of me because they're not going to. No. They will grind me up like a meat grinder and as special and wonderful and talented as I think I am in my narcissistic little brain, <laughs> I could be replaced. I can be replaced in a second and they don't care if I if the person who replaces me does as good of a job. It doesn't matter. Right. And when right. you can kind of move to that, which is another aspect of not taking it personally, you, you're going to feel a lot better. So I really, I'm so glad you reached out with this question. I want you to take care of yourself because, and I did some big research on this, which is really frightening, is that burnout is absolutely directly correlated with increase in tachycardia and AFib in adults. And it's mm. increasing. So mm-hmm. the physical world becomes your physical body. Mm-hmm. And vice versa. So take care of yourself yeah. so that you live a good, long, healthy span of life instead of having a start a heart attack at 72. And a shift in perspective does not mean that you are throwing in the towel or nope. you're letting them win. Stop thinking about it as yeah. a competition. Right. And I have seen the most growth and the most increased happiness in clients when they come back and they're like, I shifted my perspective. You know, they finally did it and they can feel it and you can see it on them. Yeah. And the self-care is great. The making sure, you know, your boundaries are in place, but that shift and that acceptance is like the icing on the cake. So exactly. Great topic. So from our good I was going to say friend, our good friend and listener and patron, Chris, he says, any recommendations on what to do with a master's in forensic psychology from an online degree program? Is it harder to get into an APA accredited doctoral program with an online degree? Even though I graduated with the 4.0, some of my professors are hesitant to provide letters of recommendation because they've never worked with me in person. First of all, that's crap. (laughs) I don't know what to say to that. Like I. well, I haven't. It's, I don't understand it either, but I do. I mean, I think I have a reason, but you, you go ahead. Yeah, I, I just want to say a couple of things. First off, I went into a doctoral program with zero master's degree. I went straight in with just my bachelor's degree. So I think just thoroughly review the doctoral programs that you want to get into. And what and, their requirements are. Yeah, and what their requirements are. If you meet the minimum requirements, go for it. But I would think that a professor who works with students online still are asked to write letters of recommendation. And it doesn't mean that they have to... I I just don't see how the interaction is much different except for, you know, if you were working in like an internship or practicum setting where they were seeing your skills, but the school and the work skills are still there, whether you're in person or whether you're online. So I don't know why they still can't speak to that. I would maybe approach them again and say, you know, can you speak to these skills of mine or maybe leave it open-ended to them? What sort of skills are you comfortable talking about in a letter of recommendation? Maybe you do have to sort of massage that a little bit. Right. I would go, I would build on that and I would go so far as to say, reach out to 
a handful of professors and in your email say, I understand that this is an odd situation in this new learning paradigm that we have in the 21st century and due to COVID. However, you know, my career path is very important to me. I enjoyed your class. I have a very high grade. I mean, he's saying he graduated with a 4.0. Yeah. So he should be able to say, look, I graduated with a 4.0. I've worked very hard. How about we schedule a Zoom meeting so that I get a chance to talk to you face-to-face? Let We will definitely limit it to 15 minutes. And perhaps yeah. you can have some questions that you want to ask me about how I felt about the class or what I got out of the class or what my goal, my career aspirations are. I think that would be a great way. Great. I do know that the professors, the adjunct professors in online programs, I know some professors, they are great. I mean, they're people I went to school with and they are really talented and gifted academics. However, they don't get paid very much at all. So I don't know if there's a liability issue involved with the school. Go out on a limb and send them that email be professional, be assertive, and you set it up for them. You give them the option of like, hey, it's only 15 minutes of your time. And these are the, like Shyla was saying, these are the bullet points that I think we should cover. I I can't understand why they wouldn't do that. And like Shyla was saying, also like I would write you one just based on the communication we've had. (laughs) We've known you for for several years now and seeing you go through this process. And I'm very, very impressed and so proud of you. Well, we can't wait to see what's next too. I know. So look, there are definitely jobs out there that have a clinical component. You know, even at the master's level, you should be able to give, proctor, and even score psych tests at the master's level. Now, you won't be able to evaluate them or interpret them, but if you were at an internship with like a private practice psychologist working in forensics or a forensic psychiatrist, then you would have the opportunity to work with them and get some hours and experience in interpretation, and that would look really, really good on a resume. And Shiloh and I were just talking about this the other day, is like, if you wanted to go solely into testing forensic evaluations, get your doctorate and get on it because... It is needed. I mean, like they yeah. are desperately looking for people to do court evaluations, and it is good money. It is yeah. really good money. Mm-hmm. So you also have the possibility of working like a, with a private investigator to do research and interning with individual practices that do this kind of stuff. I think getting into an APA accredited program shouldn't be hard at all for your background. You might be required, depending on the program, to do a truncated master's program. I know when I went to Antioch, Santa Barbara, I already had my master's. But for people who didn't have their master's, they added an extra three uh, quarters onto their academic schedule where they had to have a crash course and they got a non-licensable master's in that program. And so that's the way some of them work, but state to state, it works differently. You know, you could go into criminology with this master's, even though it's not a master's in criminology, which there are specific masters in that, Mm -hmm. you could get certification as a criminologist and work with criminologists. In some states, you can call yourself a psychologist with the master's. You could work as a corrections officer. You could work as a criminal analyst for law enforcement in big cities. They all have analyst roles. You might like that. Or you could go into law enforcement. I just think, you know, that 
it's probably exhausting now that you've finished this whole process and it may not be clear to you all the options that you have available to you, but you do have options and we're right there with our pom-poms cheering for you, Chris. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Do you want to read this one by Jackson from... Sure. He asked us this question on Facebook. So Jackson from Facebook says, how do you find research opportunities in the forensic correctional areas? Do you reach out to a police department or Department of Corrections on the criminal justice side? Or are there groups of psychological researchers who discuss research ideas? I'm a grad student and want to conduct research for publication and have no clue where to start. I'm super interested in psychopathy, application of Hare's model, and correctional slash clinical best practices. Love that question. Yeah, because it's hard in mental health to get experience, first off, and for some of the reasons that you're going to bring up, Scott. But he's just looking at research, really seems to be interested in research and some specific areas that are catching his eye already. I would start with your current professors who are working in the field. You know, if they have forensic experience, just start putting some pokers in the fire with the few professionals and experts that you know. And if they're not like, oh, free labor to do research, which a lot of them probably will, they might know someone. And you just have to start that networking web and they might get you connected with someone else who is working on research projects. I'm telling you, if you have the interest and you are not to diminish it, but free labor because you're interested in it. And I've done plenty of that and happy to do it. I continue to do it for a podcast. (laughs) You know, just do it. If it is professionally interesting to you, dive in and it's just going to be super rewarding. Aside from the people you know, like we talked about before with another question, find the current leading experts in those areas, no matter where they're at in the world. And start reaching out to them for the opportunity, whether you're just inputting data or collecting data. You have to start somewhere. So I think cold calling and cold emailing, there's nothing wrong with that. Look, you're saying something that's super important, Shiloh, is that, and I think it's something that has been lost in the last two decades, that cold calling can still happen. Yes, you can't go to Target and put an application in. It has to be done online. That, that paradigm is probably never going to shift again. However, in so many different areas, especially in academia and psychology, reach out to people. Construct a really great introduction email or letter and say, this is what I'm trying to do. I am happy to be a data processor. I'm happy to just do the basics. I will fill envelopes, but let me get started in yeah. this. And you know, and the great thing is that With the predominance now of telecommunication and Zoom and Teams and all these formats and platforms that are out there, you can apply, you can reach to anybody in the country. Yep. And when I I wrote a paper for my doctoral class on the Pygmalion effect, and I just reached out to the professor that had proposed it. You know, he was like an elderly guy and still an emeritus at, at his college or his university. And he sent me back a lovely email with like three pages of information. And everybody in the class looked around like with their eyes wide open, like you, you <laughs> wrote him like, yeah, why wouldn't I? Yeah. <laughs> why not go to the source? 
Yeah. LinkedIn is beautiful for this. I mean, I don't use LinkedIn much, but I can tell you, Jackson, I still do this to this day. Some of the best opportunities and experiences have come from just reaching out to people that I literally don't know. I can tell you recently how that happened. I met another psychologist via LinkedIn who in his state, he actually gets to negotiate. He's a negotiator for the police department. And we started communicating. We then put together basically a group of mental health professionals that are involved in crisis negotiations to where now I have this network of people. Two weeks ago, I I emailed the list and said, hey, I'm interested in what some of you do if you're psychologists who are who help out in SWAT selections for your agencies. And I had a Zoom call last night with the police, for, the psychologists who work for the police force in Singapore. And it was six o'clock my time, 9 a.m. their time. <laughs> but they literally walked me through what they do to help uh, select SWAT team members from a psychological perspective. And I have four calls booked like that. And it's never been done at my agency. And I'm just gathering data. So, like, I still do this. As a professional, I'd say 100% do it at your level too. So now one side of it, though, I want to say is that one of the challenges in pursuing this kind of research is that if you are strictly on the mental health side of it, that information from the mental health organization, they will be guarding that data very carefully due to HIPAA which is Health Information Portability and Accessibility Act. So that's due to liability issues. So a city, state, or county might be leery of sharing big chunks of data because they're afraid that it's going to compromise client identification or confidentiality, which is highly unlikely, but there are a lot of people that are still afraid of it. So, you know, you might be able now, I'm going to completely belie what I said earlier, is that you might actually be able to find public data sets at various websites. And if you just Google something like the following terms using Boolean um, searches, put in quotes, public data sets, forensics, along with, in quotes, mental health, and you will find page after page after page of public data sets, some of them that are open, some that you have to subscribe to, and you can find, you know, you could peruse through those and find some really amazing, amazing things. Very good. All right. Yeah. Should we move on to some more psychopathology type questions? So we have a couple of more like uh, clinically oriented psychopathology questions come up from one from Abby. During one of the more recent episodes, Dr. Scott had brought up to his associate who was very well versed in multiple personality DID. Recently, I've been trying to guide a close person to me who hasn't experienced much or consistent mental health help. Oh, so sorry to hear that. They relatively recently came to be aware of dealing with something in the realm of multiples. Various types of therapies seem like a good place to start. I have a list of therapists. However, I'm not sure what the acronym stands for. So first of all, Abby, great question. Second, psychology is a diverse and profound field. I am not an expert in this. I am trying to educate myself more. I consult with other people in the community that I do feel are really experts in DID. But my understanding is the term multiples is just another term for alters or aspects of the personality that have become fragmented or separated from the essential self. That's 
how I understand it. I mean, just as a review, the original theoretical description of dissociative identity disorder is that dissociative symptoms are a means of coping with extreme stress. And when I say extreme, I mean extreme. I mean, Mm -hmm. that require the process of dissociation for the means of survival, not because you didn't get the full G.I. Joe with Kung Fu grip and camouflage jeep set. (laughs) So when present, it's predominantly associated with childhood sexual and physical abuse. But this theory has been challenged in recent years by the data of a real of a host of uh, research studies and the problem is is that the link between abuse and DID almost always relies on self-report rather than independent corroborations and that is really complex and challenging and it's made worse by selection and referral bias so we're talking about something that is a very extremely complicated paradigm and we're trying to hook it into a data set that is wonky and i'm not saying that people aren't suffering i want to be very clear that i understand people are suffering from something i just don't know exactly if it all of this fits together in the way that we would like it to fit together in a nice ordered way so mostly i want to say correlation is not causation and most of the studies of trauma and dissociation are cross-sectional rather than longitudinal which means that the researchers can't attribute causation and studies avoiding recall bias can't corroborate a causal link so Also, many of the studies lack consideration or an attempt to control for other mental health challenges in the family, such as family genetics, family interactional style, or extreme family dysfunction. So one of the big things that has made it come to the forefront of popular culture and also made it more complex is the movie Sybil. Sybil came out as a book in the 60s, made into a miniseries in the 70s, and it was popularly associated with dissociative identity disorder and made the link between childhood abuse. And of course, in the book and in the movie, the examples of abuse are absolutely horrific. Even for mm-hmm. a TV movie, it was very clear. There was another movie that was the story of Chris Costner Sizemore, and her story was called The Three Faces of Eve. And she didn't have a history of child abuse was ever that was never corroborated. And what was really sad was later it was found out that the individual that identified as Sybil was really a combination of she had full-on borderline personality disorder and her therapist was a real narcissist, like problematic narcissist. Right, I remember that. there was like this really unhealthy cycle of trying to please the therapist and just kept giving more and more fantastical stuff being invented. And there was no corroboration of actual abuse in that situation either. Although borderline personality disorder, we know, despite the genetic and brain structure impact, there's also almost always an issue of trauma in that person's Mm -hmm. history. You know, not saying that this individual wasn't traumatized, but sort of we based a whole idea of study and paradigm of study within psychology on faulty data. Interestingly enough, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist because we've got a lot of examples that are being researched now. But So I want to be very careful. If someone is experiencing the symptoms that are getting called DID, it may very well be DID or it may be something else. And they definitely need support. I mean, it is like intense, hardcore trauma work to start pulling apart those pieces 
and sorting out like the fragments of the individual so that they can be reintegrated. I mean, all of us do it during trauma and hard times. We do it, we compartmentalize ourselves. And really, those are the two ends of the spectrum. On one end, there's compartmentalization. On the other end, there's fragmentation. And ultimately, what we want is reintegration of the self in order to live a a healthy existence. And our episode on that is way back episode 12, and it's called Multiple Personality Disorder is Not a Thing. So just with what Scott was saying, it's not what we thought it was based on that faulty data. And so that's what we go through. Thank you for that beautiful little recap on such a complex issue. And I've come a long way since then, too. I mean, at the time we recorded that episode, I was like, nope, don't believe it at all. I have been (laughs) educated and I have dove in and I, I want to know more. But I still say that we need to be very careful about slapping diagnoses on because many diagnoses can present the same way, but they need very different forms of treatment. All right. So this question comes from Sue. It's an email. This is really interesting. So she says, over the last few years, a childhood friend of my partner has become increasingly obsessed with videos and images of death, things such as terrorist hostage murders, mass shootings, and similarly disturbing graphic material. After he tried sharing such content on several occasions, my partner decided he'd had enough and has cut him loose, but I can't help wondering where his obsession came from. What drives people to seek out such terrible things? In my opinion, it shows a huge disrespect to victims, and I wonder what it says about the mind of someone who spends a lot of his time seeking out images of murder. Could this become a dangerous obsession? There's so many things here that I want to yeah. talk about, but I, I want to also keep it brief. Do, do you remember the days of like AOL when we first got the internet and all of those sites were up that God, I can't even remember the names of them right now with your slowly loading internet page, just yeah. like people used to look at porn, but it was like all of these grisly murder scenes and yeah. like crazy one, suicide things. There was one called Fugly, which was really like very immature humor and immature posting and like i remember there were some like you'd slowly watch that photo load and go oh boy i didn't really didn't right. see that i think gore gallery was one back then and i remember being so curious about it plus just curious about the internet at that time but then also saying to myself like i can't unsee some of these things like this person who blew their head off with a shotgun or whatever and having a conversation with myself of okay <laughs> Where is this going? And you, you probably should not keep this on your mind screen forever. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, in a sense, some people come across stuff and some people seek stuff. And I, I obviously, yeah. like, we don't know what's going on with this person. And, and we talk a lot about this convoluted issue when we talk about child sexual abuse images. But I think in that same vein, there's there's a fine line to talk about a tolerance or an interest for something really macabre or disturbing and whether or not that means that person will turn dangerous themselves. Cause I think that's kind of what she's getting at here. Like, okay, is this just this weird thing that he's into and what does that mean? But also is he at risk of being dangerous? Also think of like the cannibal cop situation, you know, these really dark fantasies that revolve around death or sex or murder that someone is engaging in this fantasy life online. What does that mean? Are they 
dangerous to society. And we are constantly exploring that when we look at perpetrators who consume child sexual abuse images. Does this mean they're going to go out and harm a child? Or is this satisfying enough that it's just going to stay with them on their computer in their home and it's keeping them from doing that? You know, those are sort of the age-old questions here. And you, unfortunately, what we do as far as parsing this research out is you look at the people who have committed the crimes and historically go back and say, or you, you try and investigate and look at, okay, what sort of behaviors did they engage in previously? And so example, when we look at child abusers, child sexual abusers, a good deal of them, about you know at least half, have consumed child pornography or child sexual abuse images. So it, it, it doesn't give you um, a lot of data to say, yes, people can consume something and be dangerous in the real world, but it gives you a little bit of insight into it could. And I think that whenever there's that chance, that's what sort of freak us out. But I think the real issue here is that he felt the need to share it with his friend. Right. (laughs) You know, like what is going on here that he just can't like read the room socially to try and get your buddy to look at the same stuff. You know, generally there's a a sense of like shame or embarrassment or at least awareness that, oh, okay, this is something I'm just going to consume on my own. So I think that's a very interesting issue in and of itself right there to look at. And I don't know what that's about. I can't answer her question about that. But there's some sort of disconnect there with not feeling the inhibitions to tell on yourself about this. I think you're really on to something right there. And it took me to this clinical place in working with families and individuals and couples. And it comes back to a communication issue. So I've been in the situation similar to that where I've had to say to my colleague or my friend and say, hey, you're not reading the room. You're my Mm -hmm. friend. We've been a friend a long time or we've been working together a long time. You're not reading the room. What, What you're sharing is inappropriate. And it's, it's real. I know you think it's funny. It's not funny. It's not funny anymore. And it needs to stop. And most importantly, I need to understand, do you understand, are you noticing that you're turning people off? Because if you're not, that's a problem. And there's, see, there's a big difference because that's what you're talking about, Shiloh, is that are they maybe socially awkward or have some sort of diagnosis that impairs in that way? And maybe they would go, oh my gosh, I I wasn't aware that I was pushing people away. Because if you get a like, what's your problem or a fuck you in response to it, then that tells you something about that person and clearly like, okay, yeah, I'm not going to invest my time here. You know, right. I had a look, I had a, a nephew of a very close friend, and I've known this guy since he was a, a, an infant. And as a kid, he became really obsessed with death, all images, movies, asking, like, oh, did that plane crash? Did they die? And everyone was just worried about it. I mean, I, and this was long before mm-hmm. I was in the field. And he grew out of it within a few years. And interestingly enough, that phase was happening right as his parents were divorcing. So oh, interesting. the kid was stressed out. He's suddenly, you know, in the midst of this 
acrimonious divorce becomes obsessed with these kind of images and drawing pictures with crayons about bombs and plane crashes and body parts and everything. And now he's a wildly successful guy with a beautiful family, great father, very, very successful, no, Mm -hmm. you know, no ill effects. That's one example that it's not saying, you know, that everybody is going to turn out that way. I will say that the research that I did on this shows that there is a physiological response that people have when they seek out stories or images that detail harm, violence, or death. And like the research that has come up lately in the last 10 years is they've been using an MRI to really figure out what's going on. And they're seeing that certain areas of the brain are lighting up. And it's the type of people that get motivation from outside sources rather than regular curiosity. So they can be really, really differently motivated. But it's Mm -hmm. all about what's being activated. So the negative cues of this kind of material are associated with activation of get out your note-taking, the striatum, the inferior frontal gyrus, the anterior insula, and the anterior cingulate corset. Cortex, not cortex. Corset. Oh, those old things. Oh, those. I remember like having the coloring book for the brain when I was in, <laughs> in grad school, trying to remember everything. And it's basically that some are firing and some aren't. But this is just the starting starting point for the research. And I'm not saying yes. If someone is for years obsessed and isolating themselves and acting oddly, anybody that's listening to our podcast knows that that's like a recipe for disaster right there. But it's also that some people may be getting in the same way. Some people are into roller coasters. There are people who are into watching repulsive things like Dr. Pimple Popper. It's very popular or (laughs) my feet are killing me. I'll tell you. Those are my daughter's two favorite shows. Oh my God. Oh my God. Seriously. So, so my daughter has a podcast called career quest and she interviews adults about their jobs her dream is to interview either Dr. Pimple Popper or the female doctor on my feeder killing. We've got to do it. We've got to make that happen. We've got to make that happen. <laughs> Ew, I hate it. And like, I, I hate can't, that she I loves can't it. watch Dr. Pimple Popper, but I watch what? facial videos on Facebook. Like there's one you can go through Facebook watch and no. watch people get facials or pedicures. And I'm like, Oh my God, I want somebody to fix my feet like that. But I don't want to watch. <laughs> I watched one episode of My Feet Are Killing Me. And oh my, I like the guy Dude. took his socks off and I was like, oh no, 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 no. People have some fucked up feet. That's all. And, and, uh, and both of these shows, I'm like, what do you mean this started 10 years ago? <laughs> what, what do you mean you have to wear three pairs of socks because it smells so bad? Get oh, a when did this start growing 10 soak, years ago? <laughs> soak your feet in vinegar, dude. Like, Stop. what is going on? Anyway, moving on. And moving on. Another question from the same listener, Abby, who is a regular attendee of our vocal session or get vocal she's, sessions. She's another one of our adopted nieces. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our 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 cult is growing. It is. <laughs> our own little family. Right. Oh, that was so creepy. So Abby <laughs> asked for a definition of narcissistic rage. And in a nutshell, narcissistic rage is the sudden expression or explosion or an outburst of an intense response. When a narcissist is triggered by an incident that occurs with another individual or like a a personal challenge, and it can present as verbal loud anger, verbal personal attacks, demeaning, diminishing statements, 
or in many cases, absolute silence. So remember that the narcissistic personality disorder is the diagnosis that is really sort of exampled by behaviors and actions of someone who has an extremely exaggerated or overly inflated sense of their own importance. And so what can trigger it? A lot of things can trigger if the narcissist doesn't get their way, even if it's crazy unreasonable. They feel criticized in some way, even when you're trying to be constructive. The narcissist is not treated as the center of the tension or the center of the universe. The narcissist is caught breaking the rules. They really do not like being caught breaking the rules, violating social norms, or disregarding boundaries. And when you call them on it, I have one that I have recently divested myself of. And I remember challenging this person on a life-threatening habit that they had. And they looked at me like like a dog was trying to understand what I was saying. It was like Ms. Othmar uh, from that Pima. Look. That just completely blank. Like glazed it was, over. Yeah, completely glazed over. A narcissist is being asked to be accountable for their actions. That's a huge trigger. They can absolutely cannot be accountable. It's like there's always external reasons. Mm-hmm. Or they suffer a blow to their sort of idealized, egotistical, over-glamorized self-image like being told that they are not going to be given special treatment for whatever's going on. If they're being another trigger, they can be reminded of their manipulation. And when it's laid out with like bullet points of this is what you've been doing and they can't squirm out of it, that is really devastating to them. So, and when they fear like they're out of control. And so now wrapping all that up, because that sounds like an absolutely horrific thing, what I would like to say, even though I've had some very unpleasant interactions with narcissists, is that we have to remember as clinicians that when we're working with people with mental illness, that it's not always easy to take in. Sometimes you have to sit with people that trigger you as a clinician And we have to always remind ourselves like we do with individuals who have borderline or people who have DID or anything on the diagnostic spectrum is that this person experienced trauma of some kind. And somewhere along the way, they were not given the tools to deal with it. They were not given the proper amount of mature parenting and reflection And as a result, they created a toxic set of armor that they walk Mm. through life with. I'm not saying that you have to stay in a relationship with a narcissist. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that you need to look at it dispassionately and realize that this is a traumatized individual who at times can be dangerous and it's your responsibility to take care of yourself. And if anybody wants more information, again, Dr. Eleanor Greenberg is on Quora.com. She is an expert in all areas of narcissism. And she is such an eloquent writer. I encourage anyone to go subscribe to her feed on Quora and read every article she's written about narcissism. It's fantastic. Excellent. Well, that takes us right into our next question, which also has to uh, do with personality disorders. So Trisha sent us an email. (laughs) A lot of our emails start this way. This may be a weird question, but is there any research or info on single white females, women who try to steal their friend or roommate's lives? I actually had this happen to me 15 years ago, and I'm honestly still trying to understand what was going on. I 
listening to your podcast, I catch glimpses of her and talk of psychopaths with parasitic behaviors, but I'm very curious what is going on in the minds of people who do this. It was a very strange and confusing experience. I bet, Trisha. So since the film Single White Female... Bridget Fonda. Yes, yes. Jennifer Jason Lee. Yeah, right? Jennifer Jason Lee, who like... She's up there with like Amanda Plummer with playing like bizarre characters. Yes, totally, totally. So this term has come to basically describe an obsessive, malevolent, and manipulative female friend or romantic partner. And in pop psychology, single white female disorder syndrome is sometimes used to describe a person like that with very antisocial behaviors. But I think we can surmise that this happens for a couple of different reasons. First, the person might be psychopathic. That might be what's going on. And they are attempting to steal or adopt someone's identity if we're just talking pure psychopathy there. But it might fit more closely with another personality disorder. And that is borderline personality disorder, which you briefly mentioned. Listen to these the symptomology and these descriptors. And to me, this kind of hits the nail on the head. So with individuals who are diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, we see self-destructive behaviors that are often impulsive, extreme mood shifts, unstable relationships. Often just relationship after relationship is very turbulent. Disproportionate rage reactions, which is what you just touched on with narcissistic rage. Right. But this is the one that gets me unstable sense of identity and playing different roles. So that could be sort of like whoever they're speaking with, they're sort of playing different roles in different arenas. But that comes from not having their their own sense of who they are. So when we're talking about trying to steal or adopt someone else's identity, this really fits. And then there's definitely a hallmark is that there's desperate fears of abandonment. And so you see this twisted attachment that has developed and they are always trying to maintain a relationship with someone and not let them go for fear of that abandonment and a lot of fear of rejection comes with starting new relationships. So it can feel very over the top and manipulative when they're trying to keep somebody connected to them. When that person kind of gets what's going on and is trying to slowly back away, some of these things might ramp up a little bit. They do feel chronic feelings of emptiness. And we often see very dramatic threats of suicidal ideation or sometimes gestures. And that's all, that's part of the manipulation a lot of the time to get the person not to leave them. But I think there's also a a piece that could go with borderline personality disorder, but perhaps it could be there on its own. But that could be some sort of thought distortion where that person slips into paranoia. And perhaps this could also play a role in sort of this single white female phenomenon. It's very interesting stuff because it dovetails with two other media presentations. One is based on a series of books the talented Mr. Ripley as mm. played by Matt Damon. So Matt Damon is, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, with that term, we talk about a narcopath, a narcissistic psychopath, or yeah, a narcopath, a narcissistic sociopath. I wonder if there's sort of a version that's a psychopathic borderline that has yeah. aspects of these two that's an overlap because 
that would fit this pretty cleanly in at least in the fictional things that we're talking about. You know, we got sure. representations where in single white female, this individual has a very diffuse sense of identity until she's cornered and then she becomes psychopathic. Mm-hmm. And otherwise she's been like, you know, a wonderful wonderful, responsible roommate and the talented Mr. Ripley, Matt Damon plays this sort of needy, but nice guy that becomes enamored with this lifestyle and this individual. So he takes over this per kills him and takes over his life. And then even another twist on it by Gillian Flynn is in Gone Girl, especially in the book. They don't talk about, they don't portray this in the movie, but in the book, they give a really chilling representation where the main character in that book is so psychopathic that she tricks her friend into acting like she's a single white female and going to her parents, going to her parents' house and saying, I'm your daughter now, I'm Amy. And then so that she could make this poor girl look crazy, she gets thrown out of school. It basically ruins her life for a decade. So I think that we're kind of talking about more the more psychotic end, the unfettered psychotic end of borderline personality disorder. I think that's very rare because borderline yeah. in itself is this state between absolute competence and and what seems like a very foundational and strong sense of self that falls apart very quickly, then reintegrates very quickly and falls apart. So thankfully, we're talking about something very rare, but who knows? Like, again, we don't know exactly what it's coming from, but clearly right. some diagnosable stuff. Good stuff. That could be a whole episode in and of itself. Yeah. Interesting. We should see if we can find some real life examples. Yeah. If anybody out there is listening and knows a sort of like identity assumption issues that relate to crimes, let us know. So this is actually kind of related. Uh, Marisha mm-hmm. writes in, I wanted to follow up about something that was said on your cult episode. Marisha, I apologize. You, you wrote this question to us probably close to two years ago now, and we're now getting back to well, it. Well, unless she was just catching up on Okay, episodes. could be, yeah. <laughs> in that episode, Dr. Scott mentions that a lot of the work he does is with patients is identity development. This is very interesting. I'd like to learn more about what identity mean, development means. Any information or education you'd be willing to provide about this is greatly appreciated. So I came to identity development because of my dissertation that I talked about earlier. Prior to that, I had no real solid basis in the concept. And it was suggested by my mentor at the time who went on to become my external reviewer. So the basic definition is identity is a complex process that humans go through in order to develop a clear, solid, and individualized view of themselves and who they are. Therefore, their identity. They have a self-concept, they have personality development, all their values are closely related to identity formation. So in the studies, I mean, what we say is that a a really well-developed identity consists of goals, values, and beliefs to which individuals are committed. So life comes at you with storms, uh, relationships sour and go bad, you lose job, you go through trauma, but you still have this core inside you that still has the relatively the same goals, values, and beliefs that you set up in sort of early to mid-adolescence because that's they're saying is that's how early it really starts getting solidified. So it's formed through a process of exploring like the options and choices that life 
gives you and then committing to those based on the outcome of your exploration. The big problem in these theories of identity development is that they're all based on really limited misogynistic Western European (laughs) idealizations, you know, of patriarchy and what is considered to be the realized adult. So that's psychology in a nutshell. Yeah. I mean, it's really, (laughs) really problematic. I mean, my work on identity development is actually sitting with people working through a narrative psychology framework to talk about like, you are doing this job that you're miserable in and is not in line with your goals and values. I'm not telling you to quit your job, but how are we going to find a way for you to sit and tolerate this so you can still make the money that you need to make to support your family and find a sense of happiness, even though it's not really completely in line with who you are. And some people kind of come in to me and they don't know who they are. Because they've been so busy for years being the caregiver to elderly parents, or they've been the caregiver to a mentally ill uh, sibling. Or Or an addict. Or an addict. That's a really great example when we talk about people that have been challenged by having an alcoholic or a drug addict in their family. And you go through your childhood and teen years adapting to surviving in that environment. Well, that's Mm -hmm. not really all you. You weren't given the benefit of full individuation. So how do we get you to a place where you can separate and really feed those important parts? The granddaddy of this is a psychologist named Eric Erickson. He was a developmental psychologist and he contributed enormously to the field of psychology, but he was an old white guy. (laughs) (laughs) He stated that the integral and intrinsic part of our identity emerges as our social nature and through social environmental exposure and how we learn to navigate all that. And he said that it takes a lifetime. I completely agree that it takes a lifetime and that you can even in your elderly years, you can have massive shifts in your personal paradigm and your view of the world and your view of yourself. And sometimes some of that comes naturally as you get older. It's like you, you know, sort of organically figure out what's important and and where you want to focus your energies. But what's nice is if you start doing the work when you're younger, you can get there earlier. So Erickson proposed like eight stages that I won't go through because you can Google them. And then four states of identity that you've either achieved it or you've reached a moratorium in your identity development, or you've foreclosed on certain goals, or you've just diffused and uh, made huge compromises, and that would be called diffusion. So it was a big part of my dissertation trying to figure out if there was a barebacker identity. I found no data supporting that, except that not only gay men or MSM community men who have sex with men, whether they as identify as straight or or non-straight, mm-hmm. I found that basically it was across the board with men. Like I read all these studies with women, and women were always saying that if they did not demand a man put on a condom, that the man would always like be willing to forestall. Like, oh yeah, well that's fine with not wearing. Anyway, right. I didn't right. find any data. I just found. It was more of a sort of a masculine ideation of entitlement, which is Mm. certainly understandable in our culture. But the idea of sitting in doing the work of figuring out who you are as an adult is super important. And you can do it 
individually, you can do it in therapy, but it really is worth sitting and thinking about and doing some work on so that you think about, am I being who I want to be or am I playing this role that my family and society has thrust upon me? Yeah. You know, and those are big questions because you may not have started even thinking about it until you're 45 years old. It's still worth thinking about even at that age. Absolutely. You know, where I'm kind of looking at this right now, which didn't really dawn on me because I'm just starting to get into the research, but at my job, I'm helping a supervisor with a project on crowd psychology just based on, you know, the protests of last year and looking at at that. And there is a whole field of study called crowd psychology. But it's so interesting to know that how classic crowd psychology is all based on a bunch of myths that there's a such thing as a mob mentality and people are going to do things that they wouldn't normally do if they're in this crowd, which is not true, where individuals always have, when you're talking about developed identity, their own core values and beliefs, that they actually won't cross those lines even when they're adopting the identity of a crowd. And that's so so interesting. popular falsehood. (laughs) It's total. There are so many myths that I just can't wait to like dive into and bust with the the research that we have now. So I'm right. And that's what we need. That's the problem in this is that we don't have hard data. You know, like we don't have hard data on how people find autonomy and mastery in their lives. We have a lot of great data on attachment, which certainly plays a resource. And that's fascinating. If anybody wants to go to YouTube and put in the term attachment, strange situation. And there's a really cool uh, bunch of videos about attachment. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I work with people in my private practice on identity development in order to encourage them to verbalize and explore who they are, where their areas of mastery lie and where they want to develop mastery. And then to use that mastery to reframe certain aspects in their linear development. So it's like, it's going to sound a little bit weird, but what I'm saying is that, you know, when you work on giving time to developing mastery in your identity and a solid foundation, you actually get to rewrite history. You know, you get to rewrite history that doesn't change the facts of what happened, but it it changes the emotional experience of what happened. And that's a great way to really dissolve the effects of trauma in your life. Very good. Well, so we're going to move into just more of the ending here and the personal questions. And we have one from patron Michelle. And I love this. It's it's a two-parter. So she says, how do your husbands deal with your bad days? To clarify, in everyday typical nine to five jobs, we can tell our spouses about the bad days at work or the annoying coworker incessantly clicking her pen. In your line of work, however, you're prohibited from discussing the annoying patient or the frightening thoughts the patient is experiencing, which are shared with you. So when you come home grumpy, stressed, and in need of a glass of wine and a hot bath, how do your husbands help both of you without the discussion? Conversely, how do you and Dr. Scott prevent yourselves from slipping into therapist mode when your spouses have shit-ass days while remaining supportive and neutral? Great question. Um, you want me to go first? You yeah. Go first. So, I I think 
I'm going to talk about this because I practice this in the same way in which I give advice to folks that I work with who are in law enforcement, where essentially it is just as powerful to process how you're feeling about the events of the day without talking about the gory details, or in our case, the confidential details. And it's it can be just as healing. It's not about what happened or what was said necessarily, but it's about my reactions and my feelings and being able to come home and say, I had a really challenging day because this interaction with a client made me feel blah, 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 or brought up blah, blah, blah for me. I don't have any confidentiality about talking about an annoying coworker. So I could certainly talk about that. But, you know, I think what needs to be processed in order for us to heal and move through it, and especially in jobs where there can be vicarious trauma associated with it, is just the processing with your social support circle or your social support person, which for some things is my husband, but we all should have a variety of people that we go to with different things. Sometimes it's you, sometimes it's my husband, sometimes it's my sister or another friend. But most of the time, it's me coming home going, I need to change out of my clothes. I need a, t- I need a bath and I need a glass of wine. <laughs> that, that's part of it too. But do you want to answer that part? And then you want to switch to the other question? Yeah. I mean, right. I am prohibited many of the times. I try not to do the the gore stuff. I become acutely aware of when people's eyes glass over when I'm talking about something that like they just don't want to hear. But, you know, my husband helps me out by, you know, he's in a completely different field that I used to work in. I don't really talk a lot about work. I will talk about like, oh, it was a really frustrating day because Mm -hmm. this happened and this happened. But it, I never really go into details. But, you know, I my take on this is that we need to get to a place where we don't take that stuff home with us. And we don't take it home with us, not by compartmentalizing and pushing it into an emotional trash compactor, but taking care of ourselves moment to moment. And at the end of the day, where you not necessarily turn a switch off, but you use a dimmer switch on your experience. And that took me years, years to figure out. Like I, when I was working at the jail and I was, had a great experience working at the jail, but I was working the night shift overnight, seeing, you know, really, really rough cases and a really challenging environment. And, you know, I've been meditating for years and doing visualizations and all kinds kinds of stuff. And I got to the point where Before I even got in my car, you know, it was a good like five minute walk to the parking deck. I would get to my car and I'd throw my backpack in and I would do like this meditation, like I'm in a shower and it's all washing away and I don't have to carry any of this home. Everything is done. I've done everything I can do. It's none of my responsibility beyond here. Tomorrow's another day. I'm doing a good job. Like it was just important to do that. And I've gotten better as I got older to balance, you know, my compassion and my passion so that it doesn't spill over into after hours, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I talk a lot with clients about that transition and it can be that few minutes in your car or it can be for many of us, it's our commute home, like using that whole time. And I have 
It, it was very surprising to me to have a lot of clients say that I love my commute time home because that's when I decompress. That's when I listen to music. That's when I think about the issues of the day. And then when I cross that threshold at home, I'm done. It's left in my car. So it, it's, I think that's a really important part, especially these jobs that can have so much bleed over into each other. So to speak to her question about how do we present our, prevent ourselves from slipping into therapist mode, Easy. I don't play therapist to anyone that I'm not getting paid to be a therapist for. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, honestly, like that's one way that I kind of know which hat I'm wearing. However, I will say what I try to do in moments that can be challenging or just maybe where I feel like I want to fix someone's problem or whatever. I just try to practice really good skills myself and focus on me instead of trying to impose some wisdom onto him. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, be a good not, listener. Yeah, you're not pulling out a soapbox and pontificating, you know, right. you're using Which, clinical. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just, I, I try to be empathetic and just meet him where he's at, like what he needs from his wife and his support system, not to sit here and like, you know, spout any theory or anything at him. Yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, I've I've pulled out the the psych understanding in in with family members or with my husband when they asked for it. Mm-hmm. But I'm very careful about what I say, yeah. you know, because I'm not their therapist. Or I, and I have sometimes I've pulled it out. Like if I see somebody's really hurting, I will very gently poke a little, saying mm-hmm. you know that with a little bit of interpretation saying, I'm really concerned about this. But, you know, you have to be very careful about how you use your superpowers. Just because we have insight into the sort of the plethora of human behavior, it's not really fair or ethical to, you know, use that on people without their permission. So, I mean, one of the things when it comes to, you know, working in what we do, I think it's very important. And I try and impart this to law enforcement. And many times the law enforcement doesn't feel safe even thinking about this is that, you know, law enforcement sees a particular slice of life and it's very narrow and that's why they're good at what they do, but it doesn't represent the other 95% of how the world works. It just doesn't. And I had to divest myself of that too. Of Like I, after years of doing this, I was like starting to look at danger on every corner and it was wearing me out. It was mm-hmm. really wearing me out. And now I have a much more balanced view of that. And I'm, I function a lot better as a result. Good. And I don't take stuff as home. Okay. All right. What's the scariest thing to ever happen to you at work? I was assaulted by an inmate at the jail who was in four point restraints and he was surrounded by four deputies and he began I was, he was there for an evaluation and he began spitting at me and he was able to spit in my eye and, you know, it got through until I was like, I mean, I was like yelling at the deputies, put a spit mask on him. I mean, I was Mm -hmm. really pissed off because Uh, they really did not handle the situation well. They really did not. And then I was terrified because I thought I have managed to get through four decades, four plus decades of my life five decades without 
any of the things that you can get from bodily fluid contact. And it was in my eye. And I was like trying to find my contact lens solution to rinse it out. And I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. And and I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine. But, you know, he, you know, it definitely made contact. I don't, we, we never got blood test results from him because the, the court wouldn't allow it, but it was really terrifying. That's a very scary experience. And I'm a, I'm a hypochondriac as well. Yes, you are. I'm a hypochondriac. <laughs> so it was, it was not, but that was really. For weeks, I'm sure it was like, what's oh, up? What do I awful. feel? It was oh my awful. God. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Well, I mean, I, I guess it, it was my second officer involved shooting. Oh yeah. You know, I mean the I, I can't think of anything that was more scary and it I, I'll paint a little bit of a picture here because it the sh- getting shot at was very scary, but in this scenario the the scariest part was the person who shot at my partner and I and who had hit my partner, he he got shot in the hand, went back inside the residence. Oh man. And so we were in the backyard of essentially the the neighbor one yard over and because my partner was injured as well as his firearm was jammed and it was covered in blood so I could for the life of me, I could not unjam it. Oh, I didn't um, know that part of it. Yeah. So basically, I, you know, I was the individual responsible for the both of us because he had a hole in one hand and an inoperable firearm. Um, that we decided the rest of the troops were coming. They were going to set up a perimeter, and we decided we were just going to get him out of the situation to get him medical attention, while the rest of the shift looked for the bad guy. And we were in a backyard and we were sort of like hopping walls where I would help him over and I would cover him and then I would go over behind him. And we were in one backyard where I swear we, you know, there must have been a raccoon or something in the bushes, but I thought for sure that it was the shooter and that there was going to be a shootout right then and there. Like, I, I just remember in my head, like, here it comes. Like, get ready. At least the first one was by total surprise. I couldn't even think. This one was scary because I just knew it was going to happen. And no one ever came out from the bushes. And I got my partner over that wall. And then I went over that wall. And we got the hell out of there. But yeah. I, oh, my God. You must thing. have been, like, just pumping out flop sweat. Like, oh, that high I adrenaline. Don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. Must have. Must have. It's so crazy. I mean, just the... The perceptual distortions that occur and looking back on it now with, with the education and the the work that I do when I debrief officers from their shootings, it's crazy to look back and sort of it, apply that to myself. The neurological effects of time dilation are astounding when you're yes. in a panic mode. I oh, was in yeah. a car wreck one time in college. It was the other scary thing. I was on an icy road in Birmingham, Alabama after an ice storm and I was in my friend Angelique Turk's car. I had borrowed her car to run some errands and I spun out. I hit, I spun out a car. I spun out really fast and another car was spinning at the same time and we were heading towards each other and we crashed. And I remember it in slow motion. Like it was just crazy. Yeah. So yeah, I remember they, they asked me, how long do you think from the time, you know, the shooting started and you guys got out of there, what would you estimate? And I was like, 15, 20 minutes. And they're like, no, it was five or six minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Where were you on 
I was a police cadet. I was in college and I was going to work that day. I didn't, I wasn't going to school that day, or maybe I had just graduated, but I remember my alarm was my television. It would turn on as my alarm. And I remember it turning on and me, you know, I'm sort of like waking up and looking at the news. And then that was right when the second plane hit. And then my mentor, law enforcement mentor, was an FBI agent in a local office here. And I just remember like getting ready to go to work and calling him. And I'm like, what do you need? Can I bring you coffee? <laughs> and he's like, I'm a little busy. And I'm like, I get it. That's why I'm offering to bring you like food or coffee or something. And uh, yeah, I just worked that day at the police station, which was just crazy and surreal. Mm. Everybody glued to the TVs all yeah. day, you know? I um, was working... I had transitioned out of casting and I was trying to be a, a talent manager, but I was helping my former casting boss, Patricia Noland out. And we had gotten a job to cast a whole series of commercials. And I woke up and my roommate in my apartment in Hollywood, he was standing outside my bedroom with his coffee and he was completely blank. And he goes, I think you should turn on the television. And I, I just could not. I mean, it was completely surreal. Kept watching it like this can't be happening. This can't be happening. Mm-hmm. And then I couldn't, you know, this was like, I don't think I had a cell phone. I don't know if I had a cell phone at the time. But I went to work. And, out, you know, Patricia was there completely ashen-faced. And we were like, surely no one's going to show up for these auditions. Right. Yeah. And... Everybody showed up. I mean, it was like... I guess you don't know actors very well. (laughs) Yeah, it was bizarre. I mean, like, I I mean, here I am. I was, I remember it was very dissociative. Like I was going through the motions, reading people, taping people, checking people in. And they were there for their audition. I don't know if we were all compartmentalizing, but they kept playing it over and over again on the monitors. We were in this huge, really new building in the lobby and we had converted it because we had so many actors that were coming in. And part of me was like, had a smile on my face and like, Oh, thanks for coming. And my interior monologue was like, how the fuck can you be here? And then I would go to myself, how the fuck can you be here? It was crazy. Yeah. Huh? Wow. Hmm. All right. Last question. Yes. Who would you pick to play me in the movie about my life? And if you fucking say Anne Hathaway, I will kill you. I, okay, no, it's not Anne Hathaway. I do not understand why women hate Anne Hathaway. I love her. That's why I, this is like this running joke between you and I. I but it's I not just you. There. I have like three other female colleagues who were like, just loathe Anne Hathaway. And I don't get it. So if anybody has any theories out Research. there, let me know. So did you watch Downton Abbey? I did not. You I'm going to Google watch right now. Okay, so I love this actress, and she played a very strong but, like, affectively meek person, which is not you at all, except I've seen her in all these procedural crime shows, and I think she's so great. She Uh played Anna Bates, and her name is Anna Fogarty. Okay, got IMDb up. love her. I love her, love her, love her. I think she's so talented, and I think she'd be great i mean she doesn't have the same voice as you or anything but i just like oh god i would love to she see would her nail it yeah i think she i'm sorry it. what's her name again i think it, let me make sure i'm pronouncing it right joanna ragat no 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 oh wait yeah it's not anna it's joanna or joanne Froggat. it's not fogarty joanne Froggat. 
Okay. I can't understand why she hasn't worked more in American film. She works in in Britain all the time. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But it'll probably won't be America that makes the story, the movie about us. It'll be some like BBC adaptation, I'm sure, which is (laughs) fine. I'm fine with that. Or Canadian, maybe. Canadian. Canadian. We love our Canadian friends. We do. All right. So the person who comes to mind for me. Well, this can't happen in the future because he's no longer with us. But I swear every time you post a wonderful, beautiful, old picture of you dancing, I think Patrick Swayze. (laughs) I know. I knew that you were going to say Patrick Swayze. Every time. I'm just like, and you know, of, of course, like every Patrick Swayze film was just at such a great point in my life. And I just have such a like soft spot for him, you know, the, like the way that I think when I think about you too, <laughs> but I mean the dance background and, yeah. and all of that. I mean, he was a very total gifted hotness. dancer. Oh, yeah. What gosh. a way to go. Poor guy. It was a very uh, brutal, brutal death, but I know, um, I know. Thank you. I like that. I mean, yes. I, I appreciate that. It's funny. Like I don't see it, but I mean, aside from the dance, but like I have heard it for years. It's so interesting. I yeah. mean, when I was younger, I heard it all the time. Oh, I think I'm it sure. was probably sort of like, you know, we had a little bit of the same facial structure when when I was 30 pounds lighter, probably. <laughs> well, I, 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 and it's not so much that like you guys are twins or anything like that, but I don't know. He so let me, me let's turn it around nice. for, the, for these last couple of minutes, a couple of seconds. Let me turn it around. Who would you want to play? Oh, I'm so bad at this. I don't know. I I would, I'm going to sit here all day. I know there's a power of editing that we could like not do this, but I don't know. That's hard. Okay. Who would, do you have someone in mind for you? I have two people and they're complete opposite ends of the spectrum and they're complete idealized versus. I do not think that I'm as as good looking as these guys. Someone has given this some thought. I have. Jonathan Groff. Just because mm, I think, mm-hmm. you know, he's got the musical theater background and he's wickedly funny. And I just, like, I love everything he does. Yeah. And plus he's, you know, I think he's a great actor. He would get all the the weirdness of my life. <laughs> and also another one, Jason Statham. Like, <gasps> I have been hot for Jason Statham for I mean, I kind of want to be. I'm a little bit single white female for Jason Statham. I oh. want to be Jason Statham. Okay. L- listen to <laughs> This, this is divulging. This is totally TMI. When I had my MySpace page, Jason Statham was oh like my, my background banner for a while. <laughs> was that those back in the transporter years, right? Oh yeah. Like those oh. fight, that fight oh, choreography in the transporter movies is like. I mean, I actually love fight scenes. I'm not a huge action movie person, but right. I love fight scenes because it's choreography, and I just think totally. of, you know the the. The beauty of people that can move that way is just amazing. So, like, I remember seeing that first Transporter movie going, oh, my God, this guy's like a superhero. I'd love yeah, that. and that gruff British voice. And, yeah. and um, then he goes and does oh my goodness. Spy with Melissa McCarthy, and you find out oh, he's right. freaking hilarious. Like, yeah. really funny. <laughs> love it. All right. You guys, let me know who should play me. Yes, I we'll give know. her suggestions on this week's Get Vocal. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Scott. This was fun. It was nice to deviate from some crazy research and answer some people's questions. It's it's like it's nice to know like what people are thinking about, what they want yeah. to know. And we have a scab more questions. We will find a way 
to start parsing these out. I think that'd sure. be a great thing to do. Like even if it's like little bits that get released. Yeah. Through the keep week them or coming. Something. Yeah. All righty. Well, thank you everyone for joining us this week on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye. Bye-bye. Sincerely, thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is utilized under a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use this great piece of music. Please check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.